0: Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Jonathan Eig, the author of King a Life. King a Life is the first full biography of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King written in decades and the first to include recently declassified FBI files. Eig's work mixes revelatory and exhaustive new research with brisk and accessible storytelling to forge the definitive life for our times. In this revelatory new portrait of the preacher and activist who shook the world, the best-selling biography gives us an intimate view of the courageous and often emotionally troubled human being who demanded peaceful protest for his movement but was rarely at peace with himself. He casts fresh light on the king's family origins as well as MLK's complex relationships with his wife, his father, and with fellow activists. King reveals a minister wrestling with his own human frailties and dark moods, a citizen hunted by his own government, and a man determined to fight for justice, even if it proved to be a fight to the death. In this landmark biography, I gives us an MLK for our times, a deep thinker, a brilliant strategist, a perplexing husband and father, and a committed radical who led one of history's greatest movements and whose demands for racial and economic justice remain as urgent today as they were in his lifetime. Jonathan Igg is a former senior special writer for the Wall Street Journal. He is the author of several books, including highly acclaimed bestsellers Ali, A Life, Luckiest Man, The Life and Death of Lou Gehrig, and Opening Day, The Story of Jackie Robinson's First Season. Jonathan Igg, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks, Tom. Um, Thanks again for taking the time to talk today. And I want to start our conversation with what is probably going to be a pretty complicated question. Um, Your previous work, focused on figures from the world of sports, Lou Gehrig, Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali. What made you want to tackle a life of uh, someone like Dr. King?
1: Well, you forgot that I also wrote books about uh, Al Capone and the inventors of the birth control pill. So I was never completely focused on sports. In fact, my um, career as a journalist was never in sports. Um, So uh, I love sports and I've tried to strike a nice balance between sports Sports books and other books. and um, But I have to confess, having said that, that it was the Muhammad Ali book that led me to King because I was interviewing people like Dick Gregory and uh, Harry Belafonte, Jesse Jackson, Andrew Young, people who knew Ali. And just out of curiosity, uh, I interviewed all of them in person and I spent quite a bit of time in their homes in some cases. And I, I just started asking them, what was Martin Luther King Jr. like? because I was curious and and King and, and Ali overlapped a little bit. They met twice and their stories certainly overlap in, in terms of their uh, opposition to the Vietnam war, among other things. Uh, but uh, I just realized I had this unbelievable opportunity to sit with people who knew King and to ask, what was he really like as a man? And, you know, we've turned him into a national holiday and a national and a, and a monument in Washington and a, and a, almost turned him into a Hallmark card. It feels like at times. And I realized that I, that I would be given a great gift if I did nothing but just travel the country interviewing people who knew king and that um what an what an opportunity that would be for me personally and then if I could also get a book out of it and share what I learned with other people that would be a, a great use of my time and, and
0: you know we should also point out it's it's a it's a moment that's going to be past us pretty soon right i mean some of the people who knew him are not going to be with us for a very much longer um this is also an interesting moment to reconsider King. Uh, there seems to be part of my part of my post-pandemic reading has been to uh, kind of go back and and study King. There's recently a volume that came out that uh, considers the political thought of Dr. King. Um, he's also a very prominent uh, prominently featured in a book um, that kind of takes him into a, um, a more of a Marxist humanist, uh, Dr. King. And I think one of the things I admire so much about your book is the way that it there there seems to be a threat, and you said we've sort of almost turned him into a kind of a secular saint. Um, and at the same time, I also think that there's this threat, risk maybe, that King is starting to fracture. Um, People are reading into his message the things that they want to read into his message because he's such an appealing figure to try to do that. And and you've reassembled that. Um, I I know this is I I should have asked you this to begin with, but if you have your copy of the book handy, um, there's a passage on page 557 um, that I think speaks to some of this. I was wondering if you could read uh, that first full paragraph
1: page 557 on my most recent junior memorial in washington dc in the spring of 2022 i found none of king's books for sale in the gift shop our simplified celebration of king comes at it saps the strength of his philosophical and intellectual contributions it undercuts his power to inspire change even after americans elected a black man as president and after that president barack obama Placed a bust of King in the Oval Office. The nation remains racked with racism, ethno-nationalism, cultural division, residential and educational segregation, economic inequality, violence, and a fading sense of hope that government or anyone will ever fix those problems.
0: Yeah, so that part of the inspiration here as well.
1: Um, it's frustrating to those of us who care about history to see it being misused and to see King being um, King's words. Being used for to support the NRA, for example, or to support um, you know military invasions that, or or to 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 attack affirmative action, right? Um, you can find a quote for any purpose, and um, King is being misused by people on all political sides, um, every from every issue. And he's also being used to sell you know laundry detergent and and uh, high end luxury automobiles. So. Um, I wanted to try to uh, return King's um, agency to uh, to make us hear his words again and understand what, he, what really mattered to him again, because um, I feel like it's one of those side effects, you know, and it's a great thing that we celebrate him. It's a great thing that we teach kids about him in kindergarten. It's a great thing that we honor him with a holiday every year. But sometimes we don't get much beyond that kindergarten lesson, and uh, we – don't assign people to read his, his books. Um, at most, we might assign, I think my kids have been assigned to read the letter from Birmingham jail in, in school, but nothing beyond that. And I think that's uh, that's not really fair to what he was trying to say.
0: No, in some ways it's heartbreaking in that vignette that you start that passage with, that the, the idea that none of his works are for sale at the, at the, at the memorial is just, it's stunning. Um, I had the chance to spend some time with uh, where do we go from here? Uh, prior to this interview and anyone who wants to really approach king i think needs to look at that book um, just to get a sense of you know obviously the heroism comes out in, in as you say all of those kindergarten lessons that that we still hang on to but the heartbreak that is that exists in that in that work is it's truly moving uh, well,
1: King was obviously much more radical than we like to teach our children today. Um, as as Harry Belafonte pointed out to me, um, we don't like to teach radicalism because we want to make everybody comfortable. But um, King was a radical long before he began fading in popularity. He was a radical from the from the beginning because that's uh, because he believed Jesus was a radical and he was trying to follow the teachings of the Bible. So. Um, we do him a disservice when we try to water him down. All, um, all of our uh, images that we'd like to have of him.
0: Yeah, even, even again, even even when it's well intentioned and we're we're trying to do something positive, I I I, I actually believe that that. Um, and again, that's I think your book makes a, an important contribution to this moment where people are reconsidering his message and trying to uh, reframe it for our contemporary times. Um, so this book is a really rich and, and layered biography of this extraordinarily complex person living through this extraordinary moment. And there are so many different ways that we could talk about this and enter into this conversation. Um, but I'd like to focus on some of the relationships that are, are highlighted um, in the, that opening passage that I was talking about. One of the most complicated, I think, is his relationship to his father, uh, or as you as we call him here, Daddy King. So tell us a little bit about what you learned about not only his his uh, Daddy King, but also about his his family of origin.
1: It's difficult to trace the King family back, as it is for many African American families, because um, slave names often weren't recorded. They were seen as property, and the government tax collectors and census takers didn't care. Um, and um, but I was able to trace the Kings back some further than some have. And I was able to see um, where they worked as as sharecroppers, who they worked for as sharecroppers and daddy King's story um, is really an extraordinary one. I mean, we should be writing operas and, uh, and, uh, and, and plays about Daddy King, because he he comes from this family of sharecroppers. His father has basically been beaten down by the system, has turned to violence and, and alcohol. His mother remains faithful to the God and and a, a a true believer in church every Sunday. Um, and and Daddy King is the one who, at the age of twelve, decides he's got to do something different. He's got to he's got to get out. He's almost illiterate, and he just starts walking toward Atlanta. Takes a job at a railroad, teaches himself to read and write, um, starts preaching at a very early age because that's one of the few jobs that um that, that black people at that point could have where they had some control of their own destiny, and marries into this uh, also very religious family. It gives him a chance to become, eventually, the, the the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, one of Atlanta's biggest churches. So, King grows up in this really Martin Luther King Jr. grows up in this extraordinary family that um, has in just. A very short time pushed itself uh you know daddy king in particular has really lifted himself out of these abject circumstances into a, a life of opportunity for his son and 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 of course that makes it puts a lot of pressure on on young ml um as they call him to uh to live up to his father's expectations and that push and pull that relationship between daddy king and mlk is a fascinating one and, and it's a it's a complicated difficult relationship uh from from beginning to end
0: yeah and because even throughout the entire civil rights movement you had again daddy king really almost trying to protect his son from some of the dangers that he was facing by putting himself in front of the movement
1: you know one of the things that really surprised me i found a um, an unpublished autobiography of daddy king something he wrote before his published um Autobiography, and it, it included the transcripts of his interviews for that um, autobiography. And he really um, says to, uh, over and over that he didn't want his boys to become preachers. He wanted them to be to choose something more stable, to to make some money. And then once they, um, not surprisingly, um, defied him and and went in. They both went into the in into the uh, priest business, into the pastor business. Um, he he urged. Ml over and over again to, to to get out of the of this leadership role in the movement that he was putting his his risk his life at risk he was putting his family's life at risk, um you know Daddy King goes to Montgomery after the after Ml's house is bombed, and says you're coming home with me, and Martin and Coretta to her credit both say no we're not we're staying here.
0: Yeah, it, it's really it's a it's a fascinating the the two of them. Uh, obviously struggled with each other, right? I mean, there was a deep and abiding love there, but at the same time, um, you know, kind of a, a, a power struggle in a sense. And that also leads to the uh, another really complicated relationship uh, having to do with his wife, Coretta Scott. Um, in the epilogue, you paint this incredibly poignant image of the blue suitcase, uh, right, that that sits under the bed containing the letters written to her by King and and... We don't know what's in those letters. Um, there's a part of me that hopes we never find out. <laughs> Probably some things that are best left private at the same time. You know, obviously the historian or the academic in me would certainly like to delve through those things to find out things. Um, what can you tell us a little bit about uh, King's relationship to his wife?
1: Yeah, let me just say that the blue suitcase is my white whale. I will continue <laughs> hunting it uh, as long as I can, but um, we don't know where it is. Those are the believed to have a oh, suitcase believed to contain uh, all of the personal letters from from Martin to Coretta. Um, but one of the, I, I, I really worked very hard in this book to try to create a, a full portrait, a, a multi dimensional portrait of Coretta, because she hasn't received a, a, a really great biography yet. She's told her own story a couple of times, but she's fascinating and she's so important. And I think the reason Martin falls in love with Coretta is because she has experience as an activist, because she has this passion to really be involved, to really work in the fight for justice and racial equality. And yet, because of the way Martin Luther King Jr. is raised and because of the expectations he has around gender roles, she never really gets the chance. And she's Obsessively frustrated by that. She begs him time and again, I want to do more. I, I I don't need to be home with the kids all the time. Other people can help out with the kids. I want to be with you. I want to be protesting. I want to be putting my um you know, boots on the ground and 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 going to jail if necessary. And and Martin won't have it. He he wants her home. He thinks that's the that's her role and that's what the kids need most. And at the same time, He's not being faithful to her, and she, in my opinion, absolutely knows it, and, and that's another source of enormous tension. And then when the FBI starts using his his sex life to try to destroy the marriage, destroy his reputation, she's got to stand up for him. She's got to, you know, she she has his back all the way. There's never a moment of doubt, as far as I can tell. In her role as, as trying to protect. Yeah, um, she, even to her dying day, refused to admit that that there was any kind of um, um adultery going on that that hit him all the way, despite you know, enormous evidence to the contrary.
0: So that leads to a, a another theme in this book that they're terribly comfortable even talking about. Um and and it has to do with King's other intimate relationships. Um, but I think the more important thing, and you highlight this, I think, importantly, is the recently declassified FBI files that were really part of an ongoing project to not merely to discredit Dr. King, but really to destroy him. I mean, you said to destroy his marriage, but but really they were trying to compel him to commit suicide. Um, and again, um the shock of the shock is probably the wrong wrong word because can any of us really be shocked about some of the things that our government has done? Um, But the, the, the part on page 397, you talk about the journalists who are given this information refused to use it. And no one questioned that the, um, the FBI was collecting this information.
1: Right. And I, I want to be careful here because I, you know, I try to let people. I try to judge people by the standards of what, in which they lived at the time. I don't want to apply 2023 standards to what we expect journalists to do. But I, I do believe that journalists had an opportunity and a responsibility to report what they knew about the FBI's campaign against King. And um, I worked hard in this book to be a fair and honest and to describe the true nature of King's you know marriage and his extramarital affairs but at all times I was conscious of the fact that what really matters about King's extramarital affairs is how they were weaponized by the FBI in a campaign to destroy him and that campaign had nothing to do with the fear that he was a communist even though that's how uh, Hoover liked to portray it it was strictly well not strictly it was largely uh, a function of racism the threat that a black man might lead the Black community into a a situation where they demanded real change was frightening to J. Edgar Hoover, and not just J. Edgar Hoover, because uh, the white media, as I said, um, made that possible. Um, Many members of Congress knew exactly what was going on. These documents were shared with members of Congress, and perhaps most importantly, they were shared in enormous detail with LBJ, who not only uh, was aware of it, but sanctioned it, and in some cases, I believe, encouraged it.
0: So, and that sort of uh, leads to another question. Let's talk a little bit about his relationship to LBJ. Uh, as you said, he was aware of what the FBI was doing. At some point, he tried to keep, kind of, according to your book, tried to keep his kind of arm's length distance from it, um, asking that the the letters be put into a a, a file by, or a, a vault right by his secretary
1: right but there was no arm's length at all actually um, lbj was was wallowing in this in this information he was a, he was a, enjoying it according to people who knew him that he liked getting this salacious material um almost you know viewed it as as titillating I think and and, and to be able to laugh uh, with the boys about you know King's sexual behavior, you know it's it, it's gossip of the worst kind, and it's pernicious and it's racist and 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 you'd like to think that LBJ would have recognized that King was a very important ally to him. Uh, LBJ said that the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act were you know his greatest accomplishments, that his his work toward um, achieving civil rights uh, and and making America a more just society was what he was most proud of. And that who helped him more in that than than Martin Luther King. Um, he could not have done it without King. And yet he did not appreciate that or respect King enough to shut down J. Edgar Hoover, or at least to say, I don't want to see this stuff. That would not have taken a great moral uh, act of courage for him to do that. Um, but he's, he's getting, um, and this is something I discovered at the LBJ library and files of, of, um, of LBJ's secretary and and his liaison to the FBI, Mildred Stegall, that he was getting upwards of uh, of one or two memos a week, personal memos, not this is not not just something that he was cc'd on. These were letters directly from J. Edgar Hoover to LBJ, and that he was looking at the majority of them and, and filing them away in his safe because he knew that they were sensitive.
0: It's astonishing Uh, um, that more than anything else, these files, whatever they may reveal about Dr. King, uh, they say really something much more profound about, um, about our government and the misuse of power um, at the highest levels of our government. But at the same time, these, this effort had its, had its effects, right? So talk to us a little bit about the kinds of strains that this put on Dr. King.
1: Well, first of all, it, it, absolutely damaged the relationship between King and LBJ which may have been you know the greatest most um, influential relationship between an activist and a president in American history and when when LBJ takes office and you and we can hear his phone calls uh, they're they're recorded and they're available we can all listen to them online um, he calls him Martin and there's this very warm, relationship that you in the tone of their voice and the way they they relate and over the months and years ahead that changes that becomes icier it becomes more formal and martin is now dr king and um that has an impact and it and it had an even perhaps even more profound re- impact on king's um mental health he felt enormous strain um as he spoke out more aggressively um not just about the vietnam war but about northern poverty and northern um racism and and segregation um he felt under pressure from all sides and he knew that that uh he was destroying his relationship with what was left of his relationship with lbj by attacking lbj's war in vietnam and he did it anyway because he knew he felt it in it at at his core, that this was the right thing to do. That this is what you know his beliefs, his religious beliefs in particular, commanded him to do. Um, so that took a toll. Uh, you've got the FBI trying to destroy your marriage. Every morning he woke up wondering whether the newspaper was going today. Today, some reporter who had the tapes, who had the transcripts, any day, any repap- any newspaper in the country could have made the decision to publish that. And he woke up every morning wondering if this was the day. That somebody published the story that he knew the FBI was spreading about him.
0: Yeah, and it's just it's just remarkable. And, and again, you describe in in really harrowing detail the the, the stresses that this put on him, um, and and the effects that this had not just on his message and his relationship, but as you say, on his mental health and his physical health. Um, I was wondering if you could just you know describe
1: a little bit of that to us. You know, it was surprising to me just how obvious it was. It, it's been sitting there for all of us to see, but perhaps because biographers 25, 30 years ago weren't as um, keyed in on issues of, of mental health, um, they didn't notice how many times Coretta in her memoir uses the word depression, uses the word exhaustion, uses the word anxiety. Um, you don't, You didn't notice that people like Andrew Young and others were saying that, you know, King started to drink more heavily. And, you know, for example, how obvious is it that when he, Gets the news that he's won the Nobel Peace Prize. Where does he get the news? He's in the hospital. He's yeah. there for exhaustion, as they call it at the time. But now we would probably call it depression. Um, and he actually lets the reporters come and interview him in the hospital, in his hospital bed. So um, he wasn't trying to hide it. And in the transcripts of the um, of his phone calls, you know, his phones were tapped. Um, his advisor's phones were tapped. We have a lot of transcripts of these conversations. And one of the things that's really stunning to me and that often gets overlooked is how often he talks about his need for a vacation, how he really doesn't want to come back from when he is on vacation. Uh, even when he's in the hospital, he asks whether he he can somebody could help talk to his doctors to get let him stay longer. So he's clearly under just enormous strain as anyone would be in that position. But you know he's human, and we forget that sometimes to our detriment,
0: um- right? forget that. Uh, one of the other important contributions that I think this book makes is that it brings to life this moment in American history that I think some people may not know or even want to know. Um, the stories concerning the depth of racial hatred that King confronted um, are almost too depressingly varied to describe, but there is a single episode um, that I want you to talk about um, that I think highlights so much of both the, the absurdity um, uh, uh, that people were willing to to go through. Tell us about Montgomery's
1: Oak Park. Oh, man. So we know all about the Montgomery bus boycotts, of course. And we know that you know, the people of Montgomery rallied and united and, and overcame enormous obstacles to force the city to integrate its buses. And they were trying to think about what to do next. You know, how do we continue this push in Montgomery? How do we... Make sure we keep the you know our foot on the gas and force the city to do more, and they consume an effort to integrate parks. Their next, um, their next effort, and throughout the south there was enormous um, segregation and enormous inequality in the city park systems and in state park systems, you know, there were more parks for white people than there were for black people. The white parks had more uh, amenities than the parks for black people. There were swimming pools and tennis courts in the white parks. There were zoos in the white parks and the black parks tended to be, you know, a swing set if you were lucky. Um, So the people of Montgomery, um, while King was now traveling more uh, nationally and wasn't as deeply involved, the people of Montgomery decided to try to, Integrate the park systems and City Park in particular was this jewel. It had this fabulous zoo. It had swimming pools. It had. Um, it was you know designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. It was one of the greatest parks in America, and the city shut it down rather than integrate it. They fenced it off and they they killed the animals, the zoo animals. They drained the pools. They let weeds go all across it. That's how adamant they were that they were not going to allow this uprising to continue. They were not gonna, you know, black people might've succeeded in getting the buses integrated, but that's, they're not getting anything else out of it. If they think this is gonna become a, a city that that uh, that, that integrates, they got another thing coming. And that was a powerful lesson. And it wasn't just, um, it wasn't just Montgomery. We see this happen in other cities. And eventually we also start to see um, schools shutting down, uh, cities and, and counties shutting down public schools rather than integrate their schools. Again, I,
0: it, it sounds naive to be astonished by it, but at the same time, there's something about that image of, you know, killing the animals in the zoo and 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 paving over this, as you said, it's a, a jewel for the entire community rather than see it integrated. Just it speaks volumes to, you
1: know, to obviously to to the race relations that were live at the time. Yeah, we sometimes forget, and it's easy to forget just how much was at stake um you know white people had this stranglehold on power they had these you know unbelievable opportunities and advantages in large part because they were able to cast the black community into a subordinate position it made for cheap labor it made for uh you know more um you know uh, lower taxes all kinds of things letting go of that you know and that's how they viewed it they viewed um integration of the buses or integration of the schools as a, as a crack that was going to destroy eventually cause their whole um, system to come tumbling down.
0: Yeah. And again, and so they, you know, talk about, you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face. They just, you know, they, they didn't have the zoo any longer. They didn't have that park any longer. It's just uh, so, and there are so many stories like this that are contained in this work and, and also stories about so many different relationships with figures like a Philip Randolph, Stokely Carmichael make Malcolm X just to name a few are, are there any is there any one that stands out to you from your work that that we should uh, that we should discuss in in some more detail I know um, you've covered some things about his relationship to Malcolm X that uh
1: I don't think are are as widely known as they might be Right. One of the um, interesting things about King to me is that he really does not like conflict. He's he's the leader of a protest movement who doesn't like conflict. And and that just tells you so much about him. Uh, but in all of these relationships with people who were he sometimes had trouble with, you know, he loved A. Philip Randolph. Um, he had trouble with Roy Wilkins. He had trouble with Stokely Carmichael. He, you know, he didn't agree with them. Always, But he was always looking for common ground. He, he wanted to work with all of these people. I can't think of a single person where he just sort of stubbornly or angrily said, no, that guy, I'm not returning this calls. He, he engaged with everybody. And the relationship with Malcolm is one that we really have misunderstood. And I discovered um, proof of just how the media... I was going to say the white media, but it wasn't just the white media because Alex Haley, the black writer, was involved in this particular scandal. But the media was distorting and trying to stoke controversy and um, create conflict between these two men. Um, So King and Malcolm only met once. Malcolm did go to Selma once to try to see King. King was in jail at the time and and Malcolm saw Coretta and and had a a good um, meeting with her. But when, after Malcolm's assassination, when, um, no, no, I'm sorry, it was before the assassination, Playboy interviewed, uh, Alex Haley writing for Playboy interviewed uh, King for what I believe was the longest interview King ever gave. It was, um, you know, at least five, 6,000 words long. And, I, and in that interview, and this is a famous quote, it's taught in African-American history classes um, around the country. King says he disagrees strongly with Malcolm's approach, that violence is never the way and people who rely on stoking hate to um, achieve racial progress or going about it wrong, so I was able to track down the um, Alex Haley's uh, transcripts for that interview, and King didn't say that. He said that in re- in regard to the Nation of Islam. The question was, "What do you think of the Nation of Islam?" And he said, "I disagree with groups that stoke violence that that um, think that um, violence is is the way to to, to force change," and they changed. The, to make to make that quote read um, as if it were a response to a question about Malcolm X. And when asked about Malcolm X, King was actually much more open-minded. He said he looked forward to getting to know Malcolm more and that he thought that they had things in common. So um, a lot of people, and, and Peniel Joseph has written nicely on this, have, have, and you know, so did um, James Baldwin, for that matter, a long time ago, said that the, uh, King and, and Malcolm were a lot more alike Uh, by the time they reached the end of their their lives um, they had more in common than they had um, separating them and i think that um, history has borne that out that they they were both moving in the same direction they were probably meeting toward moving toward a you know a potential meeting of the minds where they would have found that they were effective partners if if they had had the chance
0: although again still in the popular imaginary there that that perception that they were in some ways antagonistic to one another um, and especially, I think in your book that the vignette that you describe where King meets with um Coretta Scott
1: is is just uh, it's a very touching episode. They were antagonistic sometimes. I mean Malcolm definitely used King as a foil and you know, criticized him for, for trying to work with a white leadership, white power structure that was never going to really be um open to. To true progress, but at the same time, um, this meeting, as you've re- made mention, um, Malcolm says to Coretta very, you know, cleverly, um, let let Dr. King know that I'm out there as a target that um, you know they, they can really hate me, and maybe that'll make them more inclined to work with your husband. Yeah, it's it's really an astonishing moment.
0: Uh, so we have to start to wrap up. So, but before I let you go. Uh, I want to ask a, a final question. We've already discussed to some degree Dr. King's legacy, but why is this important today? And, and I'm curious as well, what effect has spending this much time with the man had
1: on you personally? Wow. Oh, good question. You know, I feel like we need to hear King's voice again. Certainly, um he was warning us about so much that we see in our society today, so much that remains, um, problematic. There's still so much racial division. There's still so much segregation. There's still so much inequality. We still have the police brutality that he complained about in his March on Washington speech, one that we often, uh, a line that we often don't remember. So I think. A lot of lines from that speech that we don't remember. <laughs> yes, that is true. Um, Please read the first half of that speech, uh-huh. uh, right? Um, but we need to hear his voice again. And certainly we'll find that that he has much to teach us today. Um, that's partly why I, I wanted to write this book. And, and I guess for me, how this experience changed me, I don't think I've ever spent this much time with somebody who was so deeply committed to his core beliefs, who was willing to walk that walk. I mean, Muhammad Ali was a truly inspiring hero. Um, and and he absolutely was willing to sacrifice everything for his beliefs. But King over and over again not only stepped up, but stepped up farther and farther. You know, every time he could have he could have paused, he could have allowed someone else to to come in for him to move the ball the next to the next marker. Instead he just risked more and more. You know, he he was absolutely um not perfect, but so committed to his core beliefs and so really inspiring and in that he believed that that we could change he never lost hope and man he had a lot of reason to lose hope but i don't believe he ever did no again and that's
0: i think one of the beautiful things that your book does and and why uh i'm glad that we have it now uh at this at this point in our history is because you've in a lot of ways uh, sort of restored his humanity um you know again it's easy to think about the inspiration, right? It's easy to think about um, the in, the compelling words that he offered. It's much more difficult to often grapple with the depths of despair that sometimes those things came from.
1: Absolutely. And I think he can inspire us and move us more if we think of him as a human being and, and if we can relate somehow to, to, to what he went through. And I think we, we can and should try to do that
0: uh so again the the book is due out next week correct yeah may 16th all right so uh we'll be looking for it uh i've got actually i just received my hard copy today oh uh, good so I'm very excited to get that today uh once again uh i want to thank you for your time uh and again really thank you for this work i think it's uh it, it's a beautiful book and uh and it, and it speaks so much to this present moment so uh with much appreciation Thank you. Nice talking to you. Uh, once again, my guest today has been Jonathan Eig, the author of King A Life, uh, due out on May 16th from Farrar, Strauss, and Drew. Uh, my name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to The New Books Network.